this morning and uh, it's called House Rules. So if we could get that PowerPoint up because that would be super exciting. Um, this series has been birthed out of, out of a particular idea and I don't know, um, I'm going to place myself in a certain age category here, but uh, how many of you have ever watched the series How I Met Your Mother? A couple of takers, right? The younger part of the audience, right? For those of you a bit older, how many of you watch Friends? Who's watched Friends, right? How I Met Your Mother is like the new version of Friends. Basically, that's what it is. And in the first episode of How I Met Your Mother, the one character, Barney, goes up to the other character, Ted, and he says, listen, Ted, I'm going to teach you how to live, right? And, um, and this, is, this is not an unusual concept. Our world is constantly seeking to teach us how to live. It's constantly seeking to reestablish what is normal and what is not normal, what is acceptable and what's not acceptable, what's politically correct and what's not politically correct. Did you know that 50 years ago, adultery used to be illegal? You could be arrested for sleeping with someone who wasn't your wife. Now it's the norm, right? Now we don't judge anyone. We don't, like, it's, it, that's just acceptable. That's just the way things happen. You, you, know, you know, gender used to be quite a simple thing. You, you, were, either, you were either a man or you were a woman. You know there's now a thing called non-binary gender? Right? You, you can define your gender in whichever way you feel like. And if you're not sure what gender you are, right, you, can ha- you can be gender fluid. That's a thing. Right? You can be one gender today, another gender tomorrow. Gender is up to you to decide. Parents, don't think you can tell your children what gender they are. Right? The child-centered home says everything's about the child. You know, let the child be the child and, and everything needs to be based around the child. Right? There's a lot of culture that is teaching us what is true these days. I don't know, we watched, uh, we watched a show on Showmax last night called uh, Tully's Wedding Diaries. I don't know if any, or is it Diary? Yeah, it is Tully's Wedding Diary. It's the lady who does um, Suzelle DIY, right? It's the same lady and she makes this parody show of getting married as a very privileged white person in Cape Town. It's quite hilarious. But I just realized as you engage with culture, the attitudes that they have towards things like sex are totally different to what culture's attitude to sex used to be. Right? Everything is changing. You know, if you're in Cape Town as well, you can see, if you've got any kind of challenge, you can find a witch doctor and he'll say, have you seen those great, really helpful posters? Do you have erection problems? Come to me. Do you have financial problems? I've also got a pull for that. Do you have marriage problems? Got a pull for that too, right? The world is trying to teach us how to live. That's what's happening all around us. And, uh, and so what we, what we do in our evening service back in Meadowridge, we actually we do a series on relationships almost once a year because we recognize for our young people how, how quickly they get led astray by what is appropriate in relationships and what's not, what is good and what's unhelpful. And, and I realized as we sat here that actually we need, we need to take that broader. That needs to be bigger than what we just do with our young people. It needs to be something that we as the church are delving into consistently and often. And so we're going to go into a series um, called House Rules because we see across the church, we see marriages that are fighting to survive, Right? where there are challenges everywhere and, and it's difficult and it's hard and it's not easy. We see families that are wrestling to raise their kids in an increasingly difficult world. 
We see people struggling at work, not knowing how to resolve issues. My generation is terrible in the workplace. Right? If, you, if you just spend any time on YouTube, you'll see all the videos about millennials and how unhelpful they are in the, work, in the workplace. Right? And, uh, and people trying to re- realize and grapple with how to work and how to be in helpful working relationships. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to be doing a series that I've said we called House Rules. And, these, and this is where we're going to look at some guidelines for biblical relationships. Right? House Rules is actually a, a title that scholars give to sections in Paul's letters. He, he writes almost very similar things in Ephesians and in Colossians where he speaks into the everyday relationships that we have as people. And he, he gives specifically, he gives uh, guidelines for, for marriage relationships, for parents and children relationships, and for working relationships that we experience. And so we're going to take five weeks and we're going to delve into that a little bit. We're going to look at those three in particular, and then we're going to look at the passages that sit on either side of them so that we land them in context and you understand where Paul's coming from. Right? And so that's where I'm, I'm going to start today. We're going we're gonna to start this series and we're going to start with the context, the background of Ephesians chapter 5. And so I've called it a call to godly living. Because if you read Ephesians, basically from halfway through Ephesians 4 up until Ephesians 5, you're going to see that's the common thread that holds everything together. It's this call that Paul has and says, if you are a Christian, if you've put on the new self, if you've been redeemed by Christ, this then is how you ought to live. These are the things you need to put off, and these are the things that you need to put on. And so this morning, we're going to try to do a fair bit, and I apologize for that. We're going to go through Ephesians 5 from verse 1 to verse 24. Uh, I, could, I mean, 20, 21. We could probably do at least four sermons in that section. Right? So I apologize that we're going to do it all, and we're going we're to land it a little bit broadly. And, you know, I, I, was, um, I was working on this on Friday, and uh, I got to, like, verse 2. And I was like, what? We could just stop right here. I, I, don't, I don't know how we need another 19 verses, but, uh, but we have them. So we're going to go through the 21 verses. We're going to see some of the things that Paul is calling us to. If you want to dig into them deeper, I really encourage you, go home, read through Ephesians chapter 5, dig into what Paul is saying, and get a hold of it. But that's where we're going to go this morning. So you can follow along with me on the screen, or you can read along with me in your own Bible. It's always great to bring your Bible, because once we've read through it together, I'm going to begin to refer to some of the things that Paul has said. It'd be great for you to be able to see that. But uh, let's read together from Ephesians chapter 5, from verse 1 to 21. Imitate God, therefore, Paul says, in everything that you do, because you are His dear children. Live a life that is filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and He offered Himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity or greed among you, for such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these also are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall upon all who disobey Him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine then what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and of darkness. Instead, expose them. 
For it is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For anything that becomes visible is light. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you life, will give you light. So be careful then how you live. Don't live as fools, but as those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music in your heart to the Lord. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right. That's Ephesians 5, 1 to 21. As I said, there's a lot of scripture there, and we could spend a lot of time there. Right, but there, are, there is a, a focal kind of connection that runs through that whole passage. It's this call to godly living. And, and in this call that Paul, this broader call that Paul makes, there are four imperatives that he gives. That's a technical English term for commands. Right? There are four things that Paul tells us that we need to do as we go through this. And so we're going to dissect this passage into those four sections. And we're going to look at the four commands that Paul gives to us. And then we're going to land after that. Right, so the first command that we find in this passage is to live a life of love. That's the call. It's in verse 2. Paul says, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. That's the first imperative we have, to live a life of love. And, and I hope that, that if you're here and you're a Christian or you've been to church before, I hope this doesn't catch you by surprise. Right? This is not a new command, although at one time it was when Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, right? that you love one another as I have loved you. But this is not new for us as Christians, but, it, but its magnitude and its gravity bear repeating here. We, ne- we need to actually speak about it because we, we could spend all day just in this place. Right? And, and I, know, I know some of you have been to church a few times, and I had a complaint last week that I preached the gospel too much in my message. I was like, you know, I'll take that. <laughs> That's the worst problem you have. I'll be okay with that. Uh, but this is the heart of the gospel. And, and here's the thing Paul is saying here. Right? He's not saying, I want you to be fo- filled with warm, fuzzy feelings towards everyone that you meet. Right? That's not what love is. Right? This love that he's speaking about, it's rooted in Christ. It's Christ-like love. Right? It's not light. It's not fluffy. It doesn't burn bright at first and then fade away over time. Right? It's, it's this, that Greek agape love. You remember the word agape, right? It's self-sacrificial love. It's a love that gives of itself. Which is why Paul says, just as what? Right? Live lives full of love, just as Christ loved us. Right? And then what did he do? He, he gave himself up for us. He sacrificed himself. He allowed his own life to be taken for us. Right? That's, that's incredibly strong. I, don't, I mean, sometimes we just allow that to kind of roll over us. Right? That's incredibly strong. Paul is telling us that our lives need to be characterized by the kind of love that lays down its life for someone else. 
We should be the kind of people that want to empty ourselves for the sake of someone else. We want to pour out our energy. We want to inconvenience ourselves. We want to go out of our way. We want to go the extra mile for the people that are around us. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. And, and that's, that's re- we could stop right there. This is where I got stuck yet on Friday in verse 2. And I was like, Jace, I don't know why I need 19 more verses. Right? We had a little intercontinental moment. Right? But, but there's, actually, there's a whole lot of extra stuff, Paul says, in addition to this. And so we've got, we got, we got to step into that extra meat as well. And he says this, he says, I don't want you to just understand what love is, but I also want you to know what love is not. Right? If you want your life to be pleasing to God, if you want it to be a life that's full of love, there are certain things that are just incompatible with that. And you need to know them. So he lists six of them. And actually all six carry a sexual undertone. Right? Which is really interesting in the society that we live in today. And he starts, he says, sexual immorality is not compatible with a life of love. This is, this is the Greek word from which we get in the English pornography. Right? It's porneia. Right? And it means all kinds of sexual promiscuity that start at pornography and that, that go to any form of sex outside of marriage. Right? All of that falls into the realm of porneia, of sexual immorality. And then he adds to that and he says, impurity. In other words, it's, it's anything that you do that would make you unclean. You know when you do something and you just, you just feel that nagging voice in the back of your head. It's like, it wasn't the best. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. There's this, there's this uncleanness in your heart. That's what he's speaking about here. And then he uses this, this word greed in the NLT or covetousness you might find in one of the more literal translations. Right? It describes desiring something that someone else has. And, and I would say in this context, it's most likely speaking about desiring someone else's spouse. Right? You remember the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Right? It's desiring those things that we don't have. And then he goes on, he says, you need to understand sexual immorality is such a big deal in the kingdom that it should not even form a part of your sense of humor. And this is, this is sometimes tough, especially for us as men. Right? He says, guys, obscenity. When, you, when you're saying things that are actually that are quite crass, when you're saying things that are inappropriate, you're making coarse jokes. It's actually, it's not really okay. It's not, that shouldn't even be named among you, he says, as people of the kingdom. Right? Shouldn't even be named among you. And I know, I know what it is to come out of a culture where that's just part of your humor. And it's, it's hard, and, there are, and I fall short often in this space. But this is the call that Paul's laying to us here. And I, just, I want to say something as we're reading these verses. I want to say, if some of these things concern things that may have happened in your past, right? and I want to say this morning, I'm not here to just speak judgment and condemnation over you. That's not what Paul's trying to do. Right? If there has been sexual immorality in your past, and there has been for many of us, and we've recognized it, and we've repented of it, and we've moved on in forgiveness. Right? There's no guilt and shame that you need to put on today. That's not what we're trying to do. But Paul's call is to us who are Christians, and he's saying where these things continue to be a part of our lives, it's not okay. Right? It's not okay. We, we, we can't continue to entertain sexual immorality, impurity. We can't continue to covet what we don't have. We can't continue to make bad jokes and treat sex as something that we can laugh at. You can laugh about sex with your wife or your husband. 
But don't, you're not, you shouldn't be out there making jokes with people. And sex is a sacred thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's not something that we should be making fun of. Paul says, I, I need you guys to hear this. And this is very different to our culture, right? In the show we were watching last night, they, the, uh, it was very amusing. But the graphic designer wanted to get back at the lady who was getting married because she was being totally obnoxious and ridiculous and she wanted butterflies. And so he managed to design butterflies that looked like penises. Right? <laughs> it seemed quite amusing. Right? But, but Paul's, and this is the kind of thing he's talking about, this is the kind of humor that's just everywhere in our culture. He's saying this isn't the kind of stuff we should be joking about. Right? And then he says this, and, and this, is, this is big. Right? He says, people will come along and they will tell you that it's actually not that bad. And you need to stop being legalistic because we live under grace. Right? Guys, that's not new. That's not, that's not a new thing that we just have in our you know, enlightened society. This happened all the way through the story of the people of God. There were false prophets. Right? And they would stand before the king. There would be a whole company of them. And they'd all be going, don't worry, king, everything's great. The Lord is pleased. He's going to bless us. And then they'd all get wiped out five years later. <laughs> because they kept lying. And they kept telling him it was okay, but actually to God it wasn't. And so Paul is saying, guys, you need to recognize these things are actually problems to God. They are problems in the kingdom. They should not be a part of who we are. And when people come and tell you it's okay, you need to recognize actually it's not. And so he says this, and this is really strong. He says, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. In other words, if your life is characterized by those things, you will come to the day of judgment, and you will find that you are not actually a sheep, you're a goat. That's really hectic. It's really, we're not saying you earn your way into the kingdom, but we are saying that the fruit of your life shows who you're following. Right. Paul says you need to recognize these things are serious. These things are serious. So he, so he speaks quite strongly up front. He's like, he really wants the guys to catch this. And for us, this is a big warning. In our society, sexual purity is a big fight. And it's a big challenge. And we need to be fighting it. We need to be contending for God to keep our hearts pure. So that we can live the life of love that He's created us for. That's the first imperative, and uh, as I said earlier, we've created, I've asked the team to come and, and do some worship with us later, and they're going to play over us, and we're going to do some ministry into these things in a way that I hope will be helpful, right? So if you feel God working in your heart as we go through, just know at the end we're going to create a space where we're going to ask God to just come and work with us. All right, that's the first imperative. The second one we get is this. Paul calls us to live as people of light. Right, this comes in verse 8, and he says, Once you were full of darkness, now you have light from the Lord, so I want you to live as people of light. Right, and, and in this passage, which is a, an extended passage where he goes on to almost verse 13, he, he draws this extended metaphor with the concepts of light and darkness, right, and to, to describe how we as God's people ought to live. And the light in this metaphor is those of us who have been redeemed, we've been saved. God has pulled us out of darkness and brought us into light. And the darkness is, is our former states. It's before we were saved. It's those who are not yet Christians. Right? Those who are outside the kingdom. And, it, and what he does in this passage and this section is he has two key aims. He wants to show us what light does in our own lives. 
And then he wants to show us what light does in the lives of someone else. Right? So the first thing that he says is, is that light, the light within us produces in our lives good fruit. It produces that which is good and right and true. Right? We, have, we have a technical word for this in theology. It's called sanctification. Right? Anyone heard that word before and been confused by Christians that just speak in Christianese? Right? What it means is that God is at work in us to change us into, into more godly people. So that we would be people that look more like Jesus right? in the way in which we think and the way in which we then act out of that. Right? That's what he means. He says the same thing to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2 in verse 13. He says, God is working in you to give you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. It's this light within us that transforms us from the inside out. And the force that he says this with is quite clear. This is, this is something that God does in us. Right? This is not something we can manufacture. It's the fruit, it's the produce of a life that is filled with the light of God. It's what happens when God's Spirit is at work in you. It's something that God does in us as we remain rooted and connected to Him. So, so what that means for us is if you desire to see more godly fruits in your lives, you desire to be a more godly person, it means what you need to do is to pursue Him, to love Him, to be with Him, to allow Him to speak to you, not to try your best to do and not do certain things, right? which is often where we get tied up, because spending time with God is sometimes difficult. Right? Let's be, we get distracted, or we sit in a room and we don't know if anything's happened. Paul says, what you need to do, if you want to live godly lives, you need to be with the source of light. And you need to let Him shine and bathe that in you. You need to rest in His presence. You need to learn to hear His voice. And as you do that, the fruit of your life will naturally become godly. That's the first part of the imperative, to live as people of light. And you allow God to do that in our lives. But then Paul speaks about the effect that light has in the lives of those around us. He says, when, you, when your lives are producing light, when, when the fruit of God, all that which is good and right and true is coming up out of your life, it be, your light begins to shine. Right? When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, it's now the light of God beginning to shine through you. Right? And it begins to have an effect on the darkness of those who are around you. So he said, and this is, this is part, he says, of understanding what it is that pleases the Lord. He says, rather, let's not be tempted by sin and the darkness of the evil things that people do around us, right? You need to actually stand out as different. As light is different from darkness, that's how different you are to be. You need to, you need to look different to people. They need to look at your life and see that you're not the same as them, that you do things differently. And again, this is coupled with a warning to, to not be part of evil activities. In other words, we need to take sin seriously. Right? Paul continues to bring this out. And he says, actually, you know, sin is not something, and this is something, unfortunately, we do quite a lot. He says, Paul, sin is not something to be flirted with. It's not something to, to kind of dance with, to see how close we can get to the line of what's okay and not okay. Right? It's something to, to be shunned. And actually, it's something to be exposed. See, our presence should expose the sin around us. And, and actually, this is, where, this is where it's actually quite beautiful because Paul could, you could quite easily get judgmental in this space, right? Because now my life is exposing sin in other people's lives, 
Right? And it's real easy for me to get holier than thou at this point. But Paul says that's actually, that's not the point. That's not the reason. We're called to expose sin so that there's an opportunity for sin to be seen for what it really is. Right? And as, as sin is able to be seen for what it really is, then the people that are carrying it are able to actually see that it's not good. And actually it is damaging. And there's an opportunity in their lives for repentance and redemption. See, Paul says the light in your life has the power as God is at work in you to purge the darkness out of the lives of others. That's why he says this. He says anything that becomes visible is light. Anything that becomes visible is light. There is the ability that God has as we are there to change that which is dark into light. And I don't know if you found this in your interaction with maybe some of your friends that don't know Jesus. But as they begin to see what God is doing in your life, they're able to recognize there's stuff I've been doing, there's stuff I've been living in that actually I don't want anymore. Because I can see see the fruit of what's happening in your life and actually I want that. And I'm tired of being this and I actually want that. And so your light gives them the opportunity to see the thing that they've been walking in for so long is actually not as good as they thought it was. And they can turn from it. That's the second imperative that, that Paul gives to us in this passage, that, that we can live as people of light. The last two are a little bit shorter. Hopefully we'll get through them a little bit quicker. Right? The, the third one is this. We're called to live with wisdom. Right? This comes in verse 15. Paul says, I want you to be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. And then in the, the two and a half verses that follow, he begins to unpack this with a couple of do's and don'ts. Right? So, and there are, there are many things that we could be involved in this. Paul just gives us a couple. And he says, living wisely involves being careful with what you do. In other words, don't be reckless. Don't be careless. Be careful. Right? Make the most of every opportunity. Use your time wisely. And understand what it is that God is setting before you to do. These are things that characterize those who live wisely. On the flip side of the coin, it also means not doing things rashly, not doing things without due consideration. And interestingly enough, it it involves not getting drunk, which seems a little bit out of place with the rest of the stuff, but we're going to talk about that in a moment. I don't want to spend too long here, but let's just say this. In order to live wisely, Paul says, we need to realize that God has a purpose for us, and we can get easily distracted from that. God has a purpose for us, and we can get easily distracted. That's why Paul says, you need to understand what God's will for your life is, because the days are evil. Right? The enemy is at work in the world, and he would love to pull you into any this, that, and the other thing that's not connected to what God is calling you to do. How many of you know who Jonathan Edwards was? Right? He's a very old man. He's now dead for a very long time. Right? He was an 18th century preacher, and uh, he preached, one of his, his most famous sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Right? I've actually read it. It was really interesting. Um, and that was, that was the peak of turn or burn preaching. And that was very effective when he preached that many people came to know Jesus through his ministry. When he was 20 years old, he wrote in a book that later became titled Resolutions. And he, he said this, he said, Resolved, never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. It's a very mature attitude for a 20-year-old to have, Right? challenge that we carry from, from him and from Paul is how do we use our time wisely? 
Are, are we intentional about how we use our time, or does it just happen? Do we seek to listen to God so that we can be instructed by Him? And this is, this is an everyday thing. Harry and I were having this conversation as we were in the Bluebird on Friday night. We'd gone to the Bluebird with the intention of being open to God leading us. Right? That was why we were there. But that's really how we need to be living every day of our lives. Right? When we go to work, am I there? Am I asking God, how are you leading me today? Won't you give me opportunities today? Won't you show me what you're doing so that I can be a part of it? I want to be available to what you're doing. When we're making decisions, do, do we pause, do we stop and ask God to show us how we need to be making that decision? I recently read through the life of David and I was, I was struck by the number of times David just stops to ask a simple question. For some reason it was always framed this way. It was like, Lord, do I go up? Right? Apparently he was always attacking people uphill. Right. But he, always, he would just always ask that question, God, do I go up? And then God would say, yes, go up. Or he was, one time he said, no, I want you to go around. Right. But, but all the time, even when it seemed obvious, like this was most clearly the thing he needed to be doing, David would stop and he would go, Lord, should I do this? And he would know that God would speak to him and answer him. And that needs to become a part of our lifestyle. That's the first thing we want to say about this idea of wisdom. The second thing is there's this strong warning about drunkenness in this verses. And I want to say two things about it. Firstly, it is drunkenness itself that Paul is condemning. It's the habitual drinking. It's over-drinking, binge-drinking, drinking in order to get drunk. Right, we don't have time to unpack a theology of drinking this morning. Come and chat to me afterwards if you'd like. Right? But Paul later says to Timothy, he says, you know, Timothy, you've got a tough stomach. Take some wine with it to help you out. Wine is always seen as a symbol of blessing in the Old Testament. Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. Right? I don't think, in my opinion, I don't think the Bible tells us alcohol is wrong, but it teaches us that the abuse of alcohol leads to significant problems. All right? So I just wanted to say that. The second thing is, I don't know if, if like me, you're used to seeing the word debauchery here. Right? Do not get drunk on wine, for it leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the spirits. I've always, that's always the translation I've read it in. And uh, as I was doing some research on this passage for, for my message this morning, I, um, I had a look at this word debauchery, because it's not a word we use very often at the moment, right? Any, anyone got an idea? What, what does the word debauchery mean? Some English insight? Yeah? Bad things? It's a good start. Fornicating? Right? I felt like orgies was, was up in there, something like that. You know that the Greek word here that we've translated debauchery is actually asotia, right? which, which is made up of the prefix a for anti and the word for saved, sozo. It actually means unsavedness, that which cannot be saved. And I don't want to get into a very deep theology this morning about whether or not people can lose their salvations no, that's not what we have time for this morning. But I, what I want you to hear is the strength of the warning that Paul is bringing. Drinking too much, is not, it's not like a naughty thing. It's not like, oh, I just had a couple of extra beers and you know, things got a little out of hand the other night. He's actually saying, guys, it's the first step on the road to death. That, that's what you need to catch. Right? Drunkenness is a serious issue with God. It's not something we need to take lightly. It's something we need to be aware of, recognize, and avoid. Right? We need to be very clear with those lines that we draw in our lives. Right? And so right, right in the same sentence where he says avoid drunkenness, he then gives us an instead. 
Right? Rather than be drunk, instead I want you to be filled with the Spirit. And that's our fourth imperative that we get in this passage. It's to live lives that are full of the Holy Spirit. Verses 18 to 21, instead I want you to be filled with the Spirit, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs amongst yourself, making music to your heart in the Lord, to, to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, two things that I think we, we want to just notice here, or three things actually. Firstly, the command to be filled with the Spirit is in the present tense. In the Greek, right? You won't see this in your English Bible, but it, there are two options. It could be either present or aorist. If it was aorist, it would be something that God did once and then we, we walked in it forever. Because it's present, it means it's continuous. It's ongoing, right? So in other words, what Paul's really saying is, I want you to go on being filled with the Spirit. That's your call as Christians. It's not just enough to receive the Spirit once when you believed, but the natural, continual state of every believer must be to go on being filled with the Spirit. Right? Go on day by day, moment by moment. There is no way we can ever live as the people God has recreated us to be without being full of the Spirit every day. Otherwise, we'll just walk in the flesh We'll do the things we used to do, and we'll miss out on what God is calling us to do. Secondly, the command to be filled in the Spirit is fleshed out with four subsequent phrases or participle phrases that begin to describe a little bit of what that looks like. And, and there's a lot more to being full of the Spirit that Paul describes here, but he gives us these four phrases. Right? And he says that the first thing that is characterized by it is singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. Right? And this is why we do worship in church, right? Because it's a natural overflow of God at work in our hearts, filling us by His Spirit. There's this desire when we are together to sing together and to lift up our God and our King and our Creator and just to honor Him. Right? It's not something you do anywhere else. Non-Christians don't really sing together, right? Maybe you sing Happy Birthday. If you're a really strong soccer supporter, you chant, you know, Liverpool forever. Yeah. <laughs> I don't support Liverpool, I promise. Right? That's also not a song that they sing. But I know, I know German football songs, but they're not really appropriate. Right? So, but, but otherwise, you don't really do that. But in the church, we do that. We sing together because there is something that stirs amongst us as together we lift up the name of our King, as together we honor Christ as Lord. Right? So Paul says that's what we do as spiritful believers. And that worship needs to come out of a place, out of a heart that is already worshiping. It needs to come out of a heart that's thankful to who God is and to what He has done. Right? So we make music in our hearts to the Lord. I don't know if you've ever wandered around singing songs. I think maybe it's just me. Right? The other day I walked down to the bakery at the end of our road to get some lunch. And it was great. I was just taking a walk. You have like this time. That you, and I, was, I just started singing. It was so wonderful. It's that, it's that heart of worship that God desires to be in you, that your heart just desires to worship Him. And that, that connects to this, this next thing. It's this to give thanks for everything to God. Right? That's, that's the mark of the Spirit-filled life, is a grateful heart. It's this contentment in the gracious provision of God and the knowledge that I have received so much from God. In so many aspects of my life, that my heart attitude towards Him is always that of thankfulness. And this is true because I know life is not free of hardship as a Christian. 
No one ever said following Jesus was going to be easy. No one ever said it's going to excuse you from all the challenging things that everyone goes through. Uh, and I know many of you, as you sit here this morning, there are very challenging things going on in your life. My friend lost his dad yesterday. I know how difficult things are for him at the moment. And yet, we can be thankful to the Lord because of what He has done for us in Christ. We always have a reason to be grateful. Even though his dad is gone, he knows one day he'll see him again in heaven. He knows that he has been redeemed and bought and that for an eternity he will spend with his king in the glorious fullness of the kingdom that is to come. We always have a reason to be thankful. And sometimes I know we get really stuck in the challenge and the hardship that we're walking in now and it can be difficult. But we can keep a heart that turns to the Lord and says, Thank you God for what you have done for me and in me. final marker of being filled with the Spirit is that we submit to one another. Uh, submission is a character of the Spirit-filled believer. It's, we are marked with humility as an identifier of the Christian life. Uh, there's this willingness to put ourselves under someone else's authority and to submit to their influence in our life. Paul says the Spirit-filled Christian isn't to be distinguished by a strong-willed independence. Again, something our world values really highly. Right? But it's a humble willingness to receive counsel and the grace to honor and respect other people in your life. It can be very challenging. We're going to talk a little bit about how that plays out in different contexts over the next couple of weeks. These four phrases Paul uses to unpack what a spirit-filled Christian looks like. There are many more that he doesn't use in this particular instance. Last thing I want you to notice about this passage and this imperative in particular is that this, these are the things that introduce the passage that is to come. Right? So nothing that we speak about in the coming weeks is possible without the infilling of the Holy Spirit in your life. It just can't be done. Right? God has called us to live as people full of the Spirit. That's all I really want to say this morning. We're going to stop here and uh, I'm going to do something a little bit interesting and I want to apologize for those of you who might find this uncomfortable. Right? But I would like to ask you, because... I think all of us need to allow God to minister into us at this space. Right? I don't, and so I don't want to blanket pray over all of us. I want to, we're going to take some space. Shana, if you and the team are around, if you could come and join me up on the stage. That'd be great. Um, they're going to play over us, and they're going to sing over us. And I want to ask if you would be open to just turn around and face the people around you. Just make some small groups. We've got 